The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then toward the end of Jesus' life, the prayer that is recorded in John 17, the first five verses, page 1286. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I ever had with you before the world was. And then we'll just switch down to verse 20 of the same chapter, John 17, 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did love them, even as you did love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you did love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you did send me. And I have made your name known to them, and they will make it known, and the love wherewith you, have, you did love me may be in them, and I in them." Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we come this morning to a time in which we can focus upon your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you might take these truths about the glory of Jesus Christ and that you might cause us to be filled with wonder, amazement, and have hearts overflowing with worship. Toward that end, we ask that your Spirit would help these, li- help these words of this portion of your word. We pray that they might, Lord, accomplish your purposes. How we thank you that no word returns to you void. You accomplish whatever you desire to do. Lord, do it among our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian faith and the glory of God are inseparable. Woven throughout the pages of the Bible from the beginning to the end, the theme is repeated, the glory of God. And so at the announcement of Jesus' birth by an angelic host who repeated at that time a very familiar phrase, something, a concept, and a, a refrain that has been repeated endlessly in heaven ever since creation, and continually is being repeated, is glory to God in the highest. It's not too surprising that that would be the kind of theme that would be announced 
when Jesus entered into the world, because God was glorified in the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, and each one of us exists to glorify God. The Apostle Paul summarized the reason why we are to live for the glory of God in Romans chapter 11, toward the last verse of that chapter. He tells us why God deserves to be receiving glory. Everything is from God, everything is through God, and everything is to God. God is the source, God is the means, God is the end of everything. And all that we have received has come from God. All that we do, everything that we have been able to do, has we've been sustained, we've been enabled by God to do or accomplish. It has come through God. And everything that exists is made by God, it's been made for God. So it's not surprising to read the psalmist say in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. The 24 elders who worship before the throne of God are clear as to why God is worthy to receive glory. They say in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor. For you did create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God made us and God sustains us for his glory. The primary purpose of your life, the primary purpose of my life, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jerry Bridges, as we said last week, defines what is meant by God's glory and what it means to glorify God in this helpful way. He says, quote, The glory of God is the sum of all of his infinite excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. To glorify God is to first of all respond properly to this display by ascribing to him the honor and the adoration due to him because of his excellence. That's what it means to worship. During our four weeks of Advent this year, we are considering the theme of capturing a glimpse of the glory of God at Christmas. And last week we spent a good portion of our time looking at the fact that God has a holy and eternal passion for his own glory, which is reasonable, which is appropriate, because he is God. He is the, ma- he is the maker and the source of all things. This morning I want us to then explore more about another angle of the glory of God by considering the glory of Christ, the Son of Man, whose birth announcement was accompanied by the glory of the Lord shining all around. And so I've tried to boil it down to two questions I'd like to answer this morning. First question is this. What is the nature of Jesus' glory in the Incarnation? Well, the first thing we could say is there are many ways we could answer that question, but I want to begin with a fundamental premise regarding Jesus' incarnational glory. And I would suggest to you it was a divine glory, or even more accurately, it was a Trinitarian glory. It was a glory that is shared among the persons of the Godhead. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus was not only the agent of creation, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. See, Jesus did not obtain a foreign glory after he came into existence. He has always existed and always possessed his own intrinsic radiating, brilliant glory. 
Jesus himself affirmed his divine glory in his high priestly prayers. We read there in John 17, verse 5. He said, glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I ever had with you before the world was. You see, John, the Apostle John, went out of his way when he was introducing Jesus to his readers in the Gospel of John. He took time in the prologue of his Gospel to explain that Jesus was one who in his incarnation was expressing and revealing the glory of God, which he already and forever possessed, but he made it known in a very powerful and significant way. You see, Jesus is not a created being. He is different than the God of the Mormons. Jesus is eternal God. He became flesh and dwelt among his people in such a way that God's excellent attributes were clearly revealed even more remarkably. His glory is the same essential glory as the Father, and Jesus was the one and only unique, exclusively qualified one to show forth this kind of glory. All of the members of the Godhead share an enjoyment and a passion for the eternal, their own eternal glory. And in his incarnational ministry, Jesus repeatedly desired and had a longing that his Father would be glorified. When his soul was troubled at the prospect of being offered as a sin sacrifice, Jesus, instead of praying, Father, save me from this hour, instead prayed, Father, glorify your name, John 12. And so Jesus is the one who is worthy of worship. Jesus is God. He has his own glory. He is deserving of one who should be ascribed to him honor that he so clearly deserves. In other words, you think about, I heard recently a story about uh, a child who was invited to go with their family to a particular site in which they were encouraged to take in one of the great sites in Africa of the Victorian Falls, and they were standing there looking at this amazing scene of beauty of the water cascading over this incredible waterfall. It's all over, it's so wide of a vista one of the most beautiful sights on earth to see. And this little kid didn't want to be there. He wanted to sit home and stay where uh, they had been staying. And so the whole time there, he's playing with his little uh, video game in his hands, and he's not enjoying the grandeur and the glory that was all around him. He missed out. And I'm convinced that many people are living their lives, in a sense, absorbed with their own little world, not taking the time or the the thought of reflecting on the glory of Jesus, Jesus Christ and pondering his greatness, pondering his worthiness, ascribing to him the honor he deserves. Reflecting on the Trinitarian glory of the one who was born in Bethlehem is something that doesn't come just automatically. You have to think about it. You have to ponder it. It takes time to reflect upon the glory of Christ. I would suggest another aspect of Jesus' glory is the not only Trinitarian glory, but the selfless glory of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of worship and honor because even though he is all-glorious, he laid aside his visible transcendent glory and submitted himself to the plan and purposes of the Father. During his incarnational ministry, even though he deserved it, Jesus did not seek his own glory. He says in John chapter 8, verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. Philippians 2 unpacks that quite a bit as Paul 
reflects upon the selflessness of Christ, his lack of of, uh, self-focus, his humility, in that he emptied himself. What does that mean? It means that he laid aside his glory that was rightfully his, that he enjoyed before time began. And then Jesus took the form of the lowliest person in that society, the one who had no rights, a bondservant, a slave. And so Jesus lived a life of poverty and simplicity, a life of service. And his selfless glory is unmatched. There is no one who occupies such a majestic, such an exalted place who will ever display a greater glory, a greater self-sacrificing love for others than Jesus Christ. He did not use his deserving and his own rightful glory as an excuse for the most difficult aspect of his redemptive work. Jesus prayed in John 17, 5, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What motivated him to humble himself in such a remarkable way? Listen to what Jesus said, verse 24 of John 17. Listen to what he longed for. What's his motive and what he did in laying down his life and serving others, assuming the lowest of the low? He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given to me. What an astonishing insight into Jesus' selfless glory. In that Jesus laid aside his majestic glory, humbled himself to serve and save sinners like you and me, so that those same sinners would be filled with eternal joy. Those same sinners would be filled with wonder and bliss, enjoying the one that we have offended, the one we have turned away from, the one we have uh, uh, rebelled against, that we might enjoy Him forever in glory. Does the selfless glory of Christ flood your heart with wonder and adoration? Does Jesus' selfless glory help to motivate you in your day-to-day dealings with other people as you think about Christ and His selflessness In laying aside his glory, does it help bring down to what you do in everyday life? I recently was uh, reflecting on a year ago. My wife and I were able to go and spend some time uh, last fall in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we also took a day trip to Glasgow. And while there, we were able to take in a tour of a particular cathedral, which is the prominent cathedral in Glasgow. And so we went there, and it's a very unusual cathedral in that Um, often in cathedrals they have places that you're restricted. You can only go certain places, and it's usually a guided tour where you can't take pictures or whatever. This cathedral was completely open. You could go anywhere, and you could go into all the little cubby holes and all the down little stairs and all behind the different barricades, and everywhere you wanted to go, you could go. So we spent quite a bit of time, unhurriedly, admiring the handiwork of so many who labored and built this incredibly elaborate and gigantic edifice of this cathedral. And I thought to myself as I've been thinking about that, the story about the, uh, the man who came as a visitor upon a site of people who were at one time building that cathedral and how he would have asked the question, what are you doing? And the first guy who was the stonemason, he answered and said, I'm just cutting stone." because that's what I've been told to do. 
Second guy was asked, what are you doing? He said, well, he says, I'm the best stone cutter in the land. Look at the meticulous work that I'm doing here. Look at the smoothness of the stone, the exactness of the precise measurement that I'm making, how perfect the edges are. I'm here to offer my expertise and to prove my superiority as one of the greatest stonemasons ever to work. Third guy was asked, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here to build a cathedral for the glory of God. He viewed his life as not something that defined him, but as his life was intended to be lived for the greater purpose of others beyond himself, obviously for the glory of God. And some of us, I think, live our life out of a sense of duty in that we're so absorbed in what we do. We do what we do because other people are expecting me to do that. I'm going to live up to the expectations of other people. That's what drives us. Other people perhaps among us, say, I do what I do in order to gain recognition, to make a name for myself so that people will notice me and make much of me. And so that drives a lot of achievement that people seek to do in their life. But how many of us are driven by a greater passion that says, in pondering the selfless glory of Jesus Christ, my passion is, even if people don't know what I'm doing, I do what I do for the glory of God. It may not be recognized in this earth, may not be something that people particularly make a big deal over, but are you a student? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you an engineer, police officer, teacher, retiree? Have you pondered Christ's selfless glory in such a way that it translates into affecting what you do in everyday life, being considerate and more concerned about the interest of others? that we might reflect the glory of God in the larger, greater picture of what life is all about. There's a third element of this glory of Christ. Please stay with me. We've talked about his Trinitarian glory, his selfless glory. We cannot overlook a third component, the suffering glory of Jesus Christ. So many people, when they think of the cross or they reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ, they associate it with that which is disgusting and that which is disdained. They hate it. They find it offensive and objectionable. But as you read through the pages of Scripture, particularly the New Testament writers, they insist that Jesus revealed his glory on that shameful cross. Paul noted that the rulers and the authorities who condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion did not understand that Jesus' true identity when they did that. Because when they saw him, they just saw him as a poor, ignorant, in their mind, uh, insignificant person, a rebel, a person who was going a different way, a rebel rouser, they called him. But if they had recognized him for who he really was, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.8, they would not have crucified him. He goes on to say, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They crucified the Lord of glory. I find it interesting when Jesus left the Passover meal, he knew at that time he had dismissed Judas. He knew why Judas had left Judas was determined to come up with this, make sure this scheme was hatched in which he would go to the authorities and betray Jesus to them for some money. And Jesus knew his own death was hours away. And in the midst of these developments, this daunting developments, knowing what he was about to face, 
Jesus was conscious of the glory of God. We read in John 13. Maybe you want to turn in your Bible to this passage. John 13, page 1282. Of all the things to be thinking about in that moment, Jesus connects the inevitable and momentary, in just a moment or two, the suffering he's going to encounter on that cross with the glory of God. Verse 31, 32, John 13. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Since God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. When Jesus suffered unjustly and willingly bore our sins in his body on the cross, he glorified God and made known the praiseworthiness of our great God. He revealed the justice of God in the cross. You see, God will by no means clear the guilty. He is just. And according to Romans 3, God gave Jesus over to death on the cross to show his righteousness, quote, so that God might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Somebody had to pay for that sin. He is just. The cross also reveals the holiness of God. It was revealed as Jesus died on the cross because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The faithfulness of God is displayed on the cross in that the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and many other promises of a Savior including Isaiah 53 and many, many others. All those promises are found in fulfillment on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And the love of God clearly is wonderfully revealed in the cross of Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, we read, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Let me ask you, do you ever suffer unjustly at times in your life? Do you ever get a raw deal? Meditating on the suffering glory of Jesus Christ will help you patiently endure such sufferings as a follower of Jesus for the glory of God. Read 1 Peter chapter 4. When you are reviled for the name of Christ and you are sharing at that moment the sufferings of Christ, And such suffering is nothing to be embarrassed about. It is one way to bring glory to God. That's what Scripture teaches, 1 Peter 4. There are many other things I could say there. I want to move now to our second question. In terms of, and I've already started touching on some of these and uh, thinking through some responses we could make, but what are some appropriate responses to the awesome glory of Christ? What difference does it make? How does it affect day-to-day life? Well, there's numerous ways we could answer this question this morning. I want to direct your attention to another portion of Scripture real quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, again, I'd like to encourage you to find your way there, 1375 in a pew Bible, 2 Corinthians 4. In those six verses, Paul responds to the criticism, the false accusations that many false teachers had made about him about his ministry. They've questioned his motives. They've questioned his character. They've questioned everything about this guy. And they've been 
involved in this church that Paul himself started, lived there for uh, 18 months, saw this church come together as he saw people coming to Christ. And so he's concerned about what's happening while he's been gone and ministering to other cities. And he's writing in a heavy heart, trying not to defend himself, but on the other hand, trying to respond to people who have taken his character and, and uh, dragged it through the mud. For 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. We read, Therefore, we, since we have this ministry, we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not want, walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as the Lord, as the Master, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I love this passage of Scripture. Because here is Paul responding to a crisis in his life and in this church in Corinth through the lens of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul said his reputation has been trashed. He's All these false accusations by these false teachers have infiltrated this church. And what does he say? In response to all that, he explains that a long list of afflictions that he has gone through. Opposition, false accusation, rejection. All these things because of these false teachers. He says, they have not caused me to lose heart. I am not depressed. I'm not giving up. He goes on and refuses to modify the message of the gospel to make him popular. He says, I'm not going to try to water down the message I've received to somehow gain the popularity of people who look at me and laugh at me, thinking this is irrelevant. All the great orators of the day, the Greek who loved the Hellenistic culture, they thought oration was the great ideal of all ideals. He says, people laugh at what we're doing here, talking about the gospel. I'm not looking to be popular, he says. Verse 2. But he kept on faithfully proclaiming the gospel of the glory of Christ. Why? Because it had changed his life. It had changed the lives of these people in Corinth. He says, such were some of you. He mentions all the huge issues of their hearts that have been radically changed. And the gospel that Paul proclaimed was this, that the God who is holy, the God who is just, has revealed his praiseworthy excellence by the sending of His eternal, all-glorious Son, Jesus Christ, to be the only mediator between God, the Holy God, and sinful man, so that sinners can be restored and reconciled to Himself. And by becoming sin for us, Jesus provided the means, the only means, for us to become the righteousness of God in Him. And so the Gospel is not a message that magnifies our achievements. The gospel is not a message that says, well, look at my accomplishments. Look what I've done. That's what the world relishes and cherishes. The gospel is all about Jesus. Jesus who relinquished his glory in the incarnation, taking our shame, taking our sin, taking our guilt and our punishment, that we might be able to what? Enjoy the God who made us for himself. 
that we might be able to share in the glory of Christ someday. You see, no one becomes a Christian by becoming smarter or more clever than the people around you. Every person comes in this world as a member of the kingdom of darkness. You are unable to see how wicked we are because the Bible says we're blinded. The evil one, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, blinded our minds. We just can't see all of our issues of our hearts that we're so clearly obvious to everybody else around us. They really knew us. But no one is able on their own to appreciate the glory of Jesus and His saving work on the cross and in His resurrection. But God in His sovereign mercy, God in His sovereign grace shines the light of the gospel in our hearts to the praise of His glory. And God replaces hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. The gospel of the glory of Christ is a message that magnifies the sovereign grace of God. It is by God's doing that helpless sinners like you and me come to the point where we will delight in and enjoy the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We actually enjoy Jesus. We actually make much of Him. That's not something you generate in your own heart and life. That is something God does in you. And the gospel of the glory of Christ transforms selfish, self-centered people into humble servants who consistently and practically give themselves to those who are around them who are still in spiritual darkness, who are still in bondage and sin. And you see it in Paul's life, his passion for ministry, even though it has brought into his day-to-day life all sorts of difficulties and afflictions, it did not diminish his zeal and love for Christ and his desire to help others who were struggling with their spiritual realities. The gospel propelled him to live for eternal realities. Look at the end of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. In verse 18, he says, I'm beginning to see that there are unseen things that are far more real real to me than just the things of this world. So he went from devoting his life to striving to gain his own glory by seeking the approval and respect and praise of those around him to be a person who gloried in the cross of Christ. He was a person who made his boast not about himself and his achievements. His boast was in the Lord who showed him amazing grace. And so Paul endured much suffering for the sake of other believers. His life was animated not by a love for self. His life was animated by a love for God. And by, in a sense, you could say he lived to please Christ, which is what he says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. He explained, that's what I live for. I live to please Jesus. Paul wanted other people to know the wonder of having Christ in them, the hope of glory. I wonder, does your heart still have that heartbeat? Can you say that you really love or cherish Christ? That God has ever done that work in your heart and life? Are you so busy loving yourself, wrapped up in yourself, that you're missing out on the most glorious, wondrous truth that's ever been declared? Has your heart been transformed by the gospel of the glory of Christ? Do you understand and sense all the more your need to repent and to keep on repenting for the ways in which you seek your own glory by making much of yourself to make yourself look better to other people? Or by actually trying to make yourself involved in the process of trying to make other people's faults greater so that you gossip about people and you try to repeat everything about them that shows how what a messed up person they are. Rather, God calls us to enjoy the Lord of glory 
the one who loved you and gave himself for you, to find joy in humbly serving other people in his name out of a heart that's amazed, constantly amazed at the generosity of God's grace shown to people like you and me. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you this day, very much aware that our glory is nothing. That by making much of ourselves, Lord, we denigrate the greatness of the glory of Christ. And I pray, Lord, today in some small way that we have been reminded through your word of the greatness of Christ's glory a glory that he deserved, that was rightfully his, that he laid aside, being treated with such dishonor, treated with such shame, treated with such horrendous rejection and rebuke, mocking, scorn, hatred, and injustice that fell upon him as our sins fell upon him, the the Holy One. And so, Father, I pray that you might turn our hearts to Christ that you might change hearts here today even, that you might shine the glory, the brilliant light of the glory of God in the face of Christ into some heart here today, Lord, who's been living for himself or herself. And I pray that you would quicken in them a desire to know you, a desire to live their life for something other than just themselves, that we all, Lord, might capture a glimpse of the greatness of Christ and his glory, that we might have hearts changed by your sovereign grace. Lord, lead us to repentance, lead us to faith, we pray, that we might treasure Christ and give ourselves away to serve others, to love others, to be motivated, to give ourselves for you, for your glory. Do your work among us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.